This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we're speaking with Adam Stone, founder and CEO of Speedlancer the world's fastest freelance marketplace that delivers design, writing and data entry work by curated freelancers. In 2015, Adam packed up and moved his business from Melbourne to Los Angeles. In the episode, we discuss his business journey as a budding entrepreneur to successful business owner. We learn about the challenges he faced early on, why he chose to move his business to the US and how automation is changing the future of the innovation and tech market. Let's jump in. Hello, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, you are the founder and CEO of Speedlancer, an online freelance marketplace. Before we get into your business ventures, including Speedlancer, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm 27 years old, but I've been an entrepreneur since I was like 11 or 12, since I can remember. So it's sort of my creative outlet. My sister's an artist and she helped me realize through her art that I must have a creative gene in me. And I suppose it explains my entrepreneurialism. So for me, it's like really my passion and my creative outlet is business and especially the intersection of tech and people. So as opposed to using tech that eliminates people and their jobs or creating hyper-efficiency, my sort of interest areas are using tech to sort of streamline the way people get work done, which is, we'll go into that in a little bit. Yeah, I was selling toys on eBay when I was 11 or 12. We were living in Chicago at the time as a family and we moved back to Australia and there were toys, I guess you could call them. There were also BB guns and <laughs> they weren't exactly legal in Australia. So I wanted to start something new. And so that was in the mobile phone software space. We started with that when I was 14, hired my first freelancer actually when I was 15 I had my first full-time freelancer when I was 16. He actually still works for me today, which is pretty cool. I've got a lot of experience as a bootstrapped entrepreneur. When I was 20, I got lucky enough to be a part of the 500 Startups Accelerator over in San Francisco. So I moved over there, had a bunch of visa issues. I now live in Los Angeles. I've got my green card sorted and running Speedlancer. And we're about to pivot our product and announce our fundraise. So. Had you founded another business or was it sort of little side hustles along the journey? Was there a bona fide business that you had established and closed off before Speedlancer? Yes. So I've been with AS Partners for a number of years and you guys have always handled my accounts. So yes, certainly. My revenues in that business were probably higher than than Speedlancer's, but (laughs) yeah, no, that was a great experience as well. Yeah. Awesome. So tell us about Speedlancer. What does it do? So Speedlancer is a freelancing platform, which is end-to-end managed. We started off in 2015, back when there were only really two platforms, Odesk and Elance and Fiverr, I guess that's three, but Odesk and Elance combined to become Upwork. I'd used Odesk very heavily in that last business, and I remember Fiverr's first landing page. What I realized was that other businesses weren't leveraging these platforms at all. I got a letter from Odesk at the time saying that I was in like the top 10% of users. And that's when I realized that there was a big problem because like real companies weren't leveraging the talent that I knew was out there. We'd also done a really pretty good job actually 
Perry, my employee is still with me today, he did the bulk of it, which was creating a 66 page processes manual on that last business that was then able to be siloed out into different teams. And so the teams were very self-sufficient at not only like operating, but scaling the business. So I knew that freelancers were able to be used in the business sense. That's where the idea behind Speedlancer was. It's a freelancing platform that utilizes technology to automate a lot of the grunt work of dealing with people who just aren't sitting next to you. And so it's turned out in the last like six to nine months since COVID, there's now probably 100 or 200 similar platforms like Speedlancer. So I think we did right in terms of the core thesis. Unfortunately, investors really never believed in us too much. So we had, or we had a couple of large rounds fall through for various unlucky reasons. I also had a visa rejected. So just a lot, a lot of setbacks. In the last six months, the competition has just gone through the roof. And so we've actually decided to take our software and license it to other marketplaces, but also directly to businesses who need to automate things. So you were talking before, Claire, about like how your marketing team is going to take this and do the podcast editing work. That's a core use case, actually, of our new software, which I can go into soon. But that's kind of the background by Speedlancer. Awesome. So developing the technology, I wouldn't have thought would have been too easy and getting, especially getting the business off the ground. Can you talk us through the early stages of that development journey and how you went through it? Yeah, absolutely. So my advisors at 500 Startups would ask me like, why do you have designers and writers and web developers and animators? You know, you've got all these categories of freelancers. Why not just have one, nicheify it, focus on that and do it that way? And had I done that, there's a platform called Design Pickle, which started like three months after us, who grew to millions and millions of design requests. And Russ and I have become good friends, uh, the founder. And they got to the subscription game kind of quickly. Had I done that, maybe we would have succeeded a little bit faster. But what my priority was, was always to build the technology first, because I saw that's where the areas of impact were going to be for the long term. I think we were like very, very, very early to the game. I mean, you're trying to disrupt. People didn't even know who, what a freelancer was. They thought it was a dirty word. And only like in the last 24 months since COVID has that sort of changed. So for some reason or another, I wanted a big challenge. The biggest challenge that I could conceive of, I was also very young. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like do the hardest thing that I could possibly think of, which is like refactoring work. The idea is and was instead of having to hire a full-time person, you could buy a package of work, like a workflow. So for example, you could buy a content marketing team from us or a content marketing bundle, gone through various names. And so we'd package up having a strategist, a researcher, multiple writers, a designer, an animator, an infographic designer, separate from like a head of graphic designer, then someone to actually syndicate it on your social media and then someone to do reporting. So it's like up to 10 different people in that campaign. And what we would do is we had this technology that dispatched tasks out. So we would find a content writer, we'd find a designer, we'd find a, an infographic person, we would find a strategist and it would assemble this team. We got a patent pending on it actually. And then it would collaborate everyone together. So it's a workflow that we draw out. And then we hand over work from one person to the next, connect them all in a Slack channel that's not yours as the client. And this is actually the new software. All of that is the new software that we're spinning out now. But yeah, just the focus on tech was always the priority for us. It enabled us to operate at super high gross margins, unlike most services, businesses, let alone marketplace. I was just thinking, if you can connect 10 people that don't know each other, that have different skill sets, using technology, automatically creating, creating Slack, that's such a powerful, I don't know what the tool is and the technology behind it. 
that's such a powerful thing in just professional services. Could you imagine a law firm that's got 150 staff with 20 different expertise areas and the client wants X and I can just see so many different cases for using this technology in many different ways, but that's a big problem to solve and that's really exciting. That's going to be live in a month, actually. Wow. <laughs> that's six months of development. So exactly that, that's the problem we've solved. But we've actually been doing that for five years through Speedlancer. So we've done a thousand of these complicated workflows or fully automated them. Even animation video, we produce full animations, script writing, storyboarding, character design, visual effects, sound effects, obviously the core animation as well, without any producer. That is we click amazing. a button, dispatches out, combines the work, hands over. How does the client or the person processing the request articulate what they want efficiently because sometimes that's, that could be out of your control how do you how have you solved that issue so briefing is really hard but there's sort of two components to it there's the project brief and then there's the task brief so one of them is our responsibility one of them is the client's responsibility so the project brief is like you want alexander spencer video that would be your brief your marketing team discuss and like come up with whatever brief you want but then it goes over to the team how does the storyboarder know what kind of storyboard we expect how does the scriptwriter know how to write a script that can then be converted into a storyboard or vice versa? So we decide the order of events. We decide the task briefs that go out and we say, refer to the project brief, but this is the task brief here. Go through and find spots for visual effects in a video. And that's like the task brief. That's not your responsibility as a client. That's amazing. So going back onto the business journey, so Speedlancer, you had the idea, you're getting it off the ground. In early stages with all entrepreneurs, we leverage support and so on. What support did you get from people and people you knew in that early stage of founding Speedlancer and getting it off the ground? So the first thing was meeting Dave McClure from 500 Startups. He was the founder of 500 and basically he was in Melbourne. I had the opportunity to pitch to him. And I did, I wasn't intending to really pitch them. I just wanted to pitch feedback on this new idea. And I knew about 500 startups and it was certainly not something that I thought I would ever get into. The learner's like a 20 year old, but he invited me to come. And two weeks later, I was there, put my law degree on hold. And that was that. So that was the first thing. They invested, I think, $100,000 in the business very early on. I then hired some developers. But then about a year later, I met Raphael, who is became one of our technical advisors in a way leads up our dev team in Brazil, in addition to our CTO, who is actually his advisor. But Raf had a lot of expertise in workflow systems and was running a similar company. And his team actually part of like this nonprofit development agency. It was sort of serendipitous because they had the exact expertise that we needed in order to build this collaboration software together. And so that sort of just worked out and they ended up building out our tech. And they've been an incredible support over the years, even when the going's got tough. But now we've got about 15 engineers through the same firm working on our new software. That's awesome. I think I haven't started up a business, I have to say. We did start a mortgage broking business not long ago from scratch, but it's sort of linked to finance and accounting. So that wasn't too difficult. But I have to say, you know, getting the right people, mentors, like you did early stages, that makes a huge difference to the success I would have thought. And it sounds like to those people are still involved and what they set up early stages is still around. So that's well, awesome. Yeah. So just amazing angel investors. That was the first thing. Then managed to close like our first somewhat sophisticated round led by MacDoc Ventures over in Sydney, 
which is kind of still a small round. Then we had a round fall through and then went back to the angels and, you know, that worked out and then had another round fall through and we managed to recover some of those VCs and angels again, who were still willing to back us despite the round falling through. Yeah, a lot of that. And then also grants, the Queensland government, for example, Advanced Queensland supported us with Hotdesk, that program. Granted, I had to work for that. <laughs> Most grants you do, but that was a great experience. I got to move to Queensland and mentor people in Brizzy and other areas there for six months. So yeah, just, I guess, being resourceful with the development, with the investors, grant processes. And uh, obviously, Alexander Spencer has been there the whole time. And what were your biggest challenges you faced during running the business and have you overcome them? So many challenges. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Like I was thinking, I was sort of waiting for that question from someone, whoever I interviewed with next, like on a podcast. And I was just like, you know what? I don't even think I'm mentally capable of going there just yet. I feel like I need to like not do any interviews for a few months and just like breathe and be like, all right, we got this done because it's been such a long journey. But I will <laughs> because I was asked it. But it's really bad. Like, first of all, my visa was rejected in 2015. And I had this investor offering half a million dollars. And they were like, just come to the US and sign the check. And I was like, yeah, no worries. I'll be there in two weeks. Then I went to the Melbourne consulate and they rejected my visa because they thought it was very strange that a 20-year-old would have a US registered company. And I was like, no, it's for investment purposes. Like, we've got this investor thing. And he's like, do not put this near me. I didn't request this document. And I'm like, all right, geez. He's like, I'm rejecting your visa today. This is all very strange. Wow. And two and a half years, I wasn't allowed back in the US. So that was the first. Like, so when you got rejected, there. that meant that you couldn't go back for two and a half years. That meant you were banned. It wasn't necessarily a ban. It's just that there were no visa options for me. It's like, what am I going to do now? And then I had this lawyer. He's actually got an LA office. And every time I walk past them, I give them the finger. They were like, oh, no, you won't be able to come back to the US. It's too hard. But now I'm here, so <laughs> clearly you can't just go taking every no that you get as the answer. I was able to get another visa, O1 visa, if anyone's interested in like moving to the US and visa options. I've since moved over to the green card, which was very fortunate in the last few months. And then, so that was the first massive setback. The next were like just speaking to 250 VCs and getting no's from all of them. And that was hardcore, like... What I don't understand about VCs is like, you've got this founder who's just so committed. There's nothing against me. It's just like, if I was going to be a VC, I would try to be different. You've got a founder who's so committed and here you are sitting there thinking that you know more than them. Well, no, because they've like got a PhD effectively in the topic that they're working on. So like just listening with a more discerning ear, even if you say no, it's just like not being a yeah, you can say about it. it. Yeah. But like, yeah, you know, <laughs> that was good experience and then the next setback was that first fundraising round that fell through it was going to be like a three million dollar round led by some big investors one of them said to me look the reason we connected was because he had done a lot of research into stanford called flash organizations so bringing together organizations like exactly what we do he's like this is incredible what you've done he's like i just don't see why you're the one to do it what? I was like, but you believe in this thing. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, they pulled out of the round. That was a big like A-class investor. And then another one, like they were going to co-lead the round. They put me through six weeks of daily diligence. And one partner said, yep, it's done. I was in Japan with my friend and I just got a call from the other partner. And he's like, look, I've spoken to the other partner. I just don't understand what he's thinking. 
because as a fund over the last 10 years, we've said no to every freelancing marketplace. And I just don't see why we should say yes to yours. And that was just like F, you know? Yeah. And it's crazy. Like this is like a lifetime of like struggles. First of all, nobody sees it. So it's not on my LinkedIn, you know? It's like, yeah. not like I walk around with like tattoos for each, like each, each scar. Uh, yeah. Each you know, note. All people here like seven years, like, oh, that takes a lot. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's kind of the point. And the other crazy thing is that it's all happened in the one entity. And when I was speaking to the investors this time, I was like, I want it in the same entity. Wow. You know, like, I like that. Clean up work. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. We're doing it because better story for me. I could have folded it. I could have started a new entity. I could have given the investors a clip in the new one. But yeah. the next round fell through because I had a co-founder who was like very committed. He was the ex-principal of this fund that was going to lead our round. He ended up pulling out 24 hours before the funds were due to be wired. Yeah, well, we racked up the legal fees and everything. And he's just like, oh, sorry, I'm not feeling it anymore. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And term sheet was signed. Like everything was signed. Wow. We had other, our existing investors were like, look, so impressed. They actually had been here, met him, met everyone, met the investors. They're like, look, I'm so impressed. We want to double down on our prorata, which I don't normally do as a fund. And I was like, all right, cool. That's sick. And then, yeah. Just on my birthday, everything torn out. Painful. Yeah, especially on your birthday. You just, yeah, you want those days to be memories <laughs> of great things. Um, but I want to touch on the US. So you founded the business when you were in Melbourne. And then you talked about the US and some of the challenges was getting the visa and going to the US. So what made you want to be located in the US? Why is the US so important? First of all, I've lived in like eight different cities, three of them in the US. And LA was just the one that I fell in love with the most. That's the first thing. Second thing is the time zone. I think just being in the US for me, where your client, well, where my clients are, where my team is really important. The Brazil firm, they just sort of fell in my laps. It's not like I couldn't have hired in Australia or whatever, but just happened to be where they are and where I'm finding most of the talent that we need is, is out here in the US. Australia is far away for my line of work. The US is so startup friendly, so founder friendly, so motivating, and it's so big. You can kind of pick wherever you like. LA is one flight from Melbourne, where I'm from, obviously. So yeah, for me, it was just a sort of a, just happened. It really just happened. I think Dave McClaw, my mom can blame him probably. For <laughs> no, other than that, I think it's where I need to be. It was a, the motivation. You've obviously spoken about your, your teams there and so on. A lot of my clients, they say that we want to go into the US market because of population and we get growth a lot faster. And if you crack it, the multiples and vowels and all that kind of stuff is out of this world. It doesn't sound like that was the motivation. Was that part of it to sell into the US and a bigger market that allows you to grow faster? Or was it yeah, something else? I think so. I think it's also just about survival. I think that like working different time zones just doesn't work for me in Australia. Brazil's impossible pitching investors like I tapped out of the Australian investor landscape so it wasn't necessarily about opportunity so much as like survival and obviously that is due to opportunity out here so yes there's a lot more opportunity there's a lot more customers it's good to be where your customers are but I don't want to bag Australia like there's companies like Canva and they're Atlassian they're able to operate globally my last business I was able to operate from my bedroom it's certainly not an impossibility. I just want to give myself the best chance of success. And also for my age as well, it's nice. Like I just don't feel the need to be stuck in one place. I like that. And I think you probably learned that before most people in Melbourne around COVID and being able to work remotely and doing things remotely. I think we've definitely as a state and a country have evolved and 
I work very differently now. So I suspect over the coming years, there's going to be a lot more people thinking a little bit more broadly on, on location and how they manage that. Moving to the US, you lived in Chicago, you did live in other cities, but you were in Melbourne at the time and went back to the US and it was specifically for business. So tell me about some of those early stage business challenges. Did you know the laws there? What were some of those early challenges for an Aussie going to the US and how you kind of overcome those? The biggest challenge is accounting across borders. Oh, no. It is absolute madness. It is. <laughs> so I've had to navigate that because also I don't expect my Australian firm necessarily to know all the US intricate details, but just need to have two sets of accounts for personal and for business. Look, it's not even to do with the accounting firms. It's just to do with my own knowledge and how much implicit knowledge that I didn't even know I had before and how much implicit knowledge I'm lacking, especially in the US, and then let alone how international things work. I've just got no idea, very hard. So that's been a big challenge. So I'm glad I've sort of found a way by having two firms and that's been good. Other than that, like, I don't know, the US is kind of a similar but very different culture in a lot of ways. Americans are a lot more forward, a lot more open, a lot less tall poppy, which is actually a really nice combination once you get used to it. You can just be a lot more expressive, being less reserved. And that, in my eyes, is a lot more honest. You're not scared of offending anyone. You're not scared of tall poppy syndrome. You're not even scared of failure. Like You can talk about your failures. It's not about bragging. It's about just being honest about events. <laughs> That's what it's about. I feel like in Australia, you have to do a lot of like hiding things or like framing things in the right way. Here, everyone's just like down to work, down to business, down to be motivated. So those are the cultural things, the accounting things. We've gone through the visa stuff. Other than that, like it's all pretty doable. I mean, everyone's really nice and welcoming. Awesome. What advice would you give to someone that's a technology business startup here doing really, really well, but really have tapped out in terms of either could be customers getting the right people on, in the team and they want to go to the US, they see that that's the pathway for them and they're going to do that. What some advices would you give to them to do that? Is it something you encourage or what would you do there? It depends if they've decided to do it or they're still questioning to do it. If they're still deciding, I would say, well, look, I think you have to decide on the basis of your question, it said they've tapped out of the Australian market. Well, then you have to decide how important is your business to you. If it is important, well, then you've got to treat it as important and water it because it needs to be watered. Then you've got to make the move. It doesn't sound like it's much of a choice in that scenario. You can hire a team, you can hire a managing director, but like if it's actually your next growth market, sure, you'd put a managing director where you've sort of hit stagnation and do the same thing again in a much larger market. So to me, that's just sort of a non-negotiable unless there's some limiting reason, but business is full of limiting reasons. Sometimes it's good to find ways around them. If they're not sure whether to do it or they haven't tapped out, well, yeah, then again, you have to really just weigh it up. But at some point, if that's your next growth market, if you've truly tapped out of Australia and your goal is to grow, I don't see too many other options. What's the one thing that surprised you the most about how Americans do business versus the Australians? Very forward, very direct. Also generally like more competitive. And I think more competitive leads to people being more careful about what they say. Like in Australia, you can be hypercritical, but if someone's hypercritical to you and you don't know anything else, you're just going to take their criticism and that actually gives them a point of power. If you're critical in the US, 
and then someone goes around that criticism and ends up succeeding, then you just look like a fool. So what I mean by competition in that sense is like, you could have a hundred advisors all with the same expertise and Australia might be two, three, four, ten experts. The experts here have had to learn a lot faster and have had to learn that there are ways around things. Mm. I wanted to just talk about some goals. You said uh, you pivoted the business. What are the goals for Speedlancer in the next 12 months? You've all got a lot going on at the moment. So tell us about some of the things you're working on now. Yeah. So right now we're just clearing off the fundraise. It's an equity round. So takes a lot of time and unfortunately legal dollars, which I'm not a fan of, but <laughs> my investors told me there's a lot of cleanup work. So we have to do all that as an old entity. That's the focus for the next couple of weeks, the product itself. So my CTO, it's a guy named Marcus Bredo. He's a PhD, actually an AI professor, artificial intelligence professor with 150 published papers over the last 40 Amazing. years. He spent the last 20 years working specifically on social robots at the intersection of psychology and technology and AI. And so what we're building out and launching in the next few weeks, there's kind of two core uses here. The first one is an AI project manager. We had built out for Speedlancer the ability to communicate between like Slack to Slack. So a freelancer on one end, a client on the other end, and they don't have to be in the same Slack account. Yeah. Customers have been requesting, okay, what about not just Slack? What about Microsoft Teams? What about WhatsApp, Telegram, Discord, all these other platforms, SMS even. And so the first thing is we built out this platform uh, that collaborates those communication channels together. So that's called Connect. And that we're actually licensing to other freelancing platforms. So users don't need to communicate only on the platform. They can communicate with a freelancer that they hired on the platform, but on their own Slack or Microsoft Teams account. And the freelancer, say you hire a designer, they can just quickly reply on their WhatsApp on their phone. And that relays through to the client on their Slack or Microsoft Teams. I love Teams. that. So that's critical in my eyes for the future of work, especially if you're hiring on a platform, the platforms don't want you getting everyone's personal details and going around the platform. So that's the first thing. So we call that marketplace connect as a licensing thing. So we're actually working on a few licensing deals for that at the moment, which are pretty substantial. So if that comes through, then we're really in a very good position. And the product, it's a stupid name. It stands for Automated Data Automated Management, A-M, <laughs> which is my name. <laughs> um, and I hated it at first, but it was actually not my idea. Someone had suggested it to me, a branding expert. I'm like, mm. and it was un unsolicited. He's like, I hate the name that you've chosen. It's going to be called Chime. He's like, I hate it. I'm going to call you back. I've got an idea for you. So he calls me back five minutes later. He goes, the name is Adam. I go, no, that's my name. <laughs> and uh, he goes, no, no, hear me out. It's an acronym. I go, what for? He goes, automated data, automated management. And I go, all right, I'm listening. I love that's it. exactly what we do, <laughs> uh, which you'll see in a sec. But the domain name is Start Adam. And our logo was designed by a lady named Yi Ying. She was the creative director of 500 Startups. She is the art director of the city of San Francisco. Wow, I love it. She designed the dumpling emoji and the bubble tea emoji and the chopsticks. A very talented designer and she did a very great job with it people either hate it or they love it start yep. adam.com start adam.com well the listeners yeah. have to quickly google that and and have a look at the logo i love that that's awesome yeah so we have the communication piece but we also wanted customers to be able to queue up their speedlancer tasks on platforms like trello then we were like what about not just trello there's asana ClickUp. microsoft has their own task platform jira Asana, Rike, Monday.com, like all these platforms. So we're like, all right, we're building out all those integrations. Then we realized, okay, we're building out project management tool integrations, communication tool integrations. We sit in the middle, 
that's the automated data piece. We can see all of the data going on in the organization. And then we were like, hold on, if we see all the data going through and we have all these permissions between project management tool and comms tools, we can actually control the way tasks are routed and what we do with that. That's the automated management piece. So what we're building is this AI project manager where, for example, if someone on your team delivers five tasks on time well this week, they get an automated reward, be it a gift card or an experience or a cash reward, whatever it is, an investor invested for a productivity betting application. So you could bet like that I'm not going to sign my accounts by X date because I'm always late at signing stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But then someone else on your team might be like, no, 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 I've spoken to him. He's going to sign it quickly this time. And so you could set up a a little bet internally, put 200 bucks down or something. That's awesome. Another one we're really excited about, and this is going back to the podcasting example, it's called Production Line. I'm very excited about this one. You install it into your Trello or your ClickUp or Monday.com or Rack, whatever tool you're using. And it takes over the lanes, like the columns, you can specify each column, different persons responsible for each one. You can brief out each task, very similar to Speedlancer. What it will do is like, let's say you are producing a podcast. Each episode is the same flow. You have to edit it, transcribe it, caption it, write a blog post around it. Then you want a social media person to like review it and chop it up into snippets. Then you want a designer to like make a frame around it. And then you want it syndicated. This could be half your team, half another freelancing platform, half like you've got well, that's three halves, but that, let's go with it. <laughs> external contractors who are, I'm not the accountant. That's all <laughs> External good. contractors who are coming in, all three halves can be collaborating in together the in the one workflow. And it assembles the team on their WhatsApp, their Slack, their Microsoft Teams and hands over between one person and the next. So that's called production line. Very excited about that one. Another one is autopilot. So you've assigned a task to someone and it follows up with them until the task is completed. And you just do that on your existing project management tools. So you can assign a task via Trello and then it'll take over that task and keep following up with them until the task is done. The idea being you don't need to ever say, what's the status of this task yeah. again? I'm looking at this. My jaw is is definitely hit the ground because we're a labor business and we do so many things, so many jobs, so many projects, so many tasks are done in doing stuff. And look, we have our ways of doing it and ways of managing it. But what I'm just looking at going, listening to you, there's so many inefficiencies in business when you're managing tasks, managing people. And if you can get off this off the ground and people implement it into their businesses, it's going to save electricity, paper, increased profits. And it's just a better use of resources. And we're so resource poor and time is the most crucial resource. You're solving that, I reckon. I think that's a, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Always be curious to hear about additional use cases, professional services. I mean, that is like a dream sort of use case for us. And it's going to be interesting to see after we launch it, like which use cases pick it up. I think yeah. agencies and marketing teams will be really big ones. You're so young. You're only 27. Do you have an end game in mind or is it just following the journey of your passion at the moment and see where it leads it to? I don't think there's an end game. I was fortunate enough to have some success when I was young and I bought my dream car, got the opportunity to travel and work. So I felt like I'd achieved the quote unquote success like metrics. And the reason I mentioned that is it sent me into like a big, deep existential crisis which I was fortunately able to get through, but it was very profound and dictated the next journey, which was to work on something as big as I could think about. 
but also it's not about the size or the scale. It's mostly about the challenge and the creativity that I'm able to embark on every day. So I know it sounds a bit whack, but that's the reality. Yeah, I don't really have any dream to retire per se. Like I would do something. Oh, you're too young to use the R word, Adam. What I would do, I would like study psychology and like do performance psychology. That would be pretty cool. Be more of a helicopter pilot. That would be really cool. Yeah. But no, I think I need to be creative. So I think there'll always be some business in my... Your sister was right. One of the things that I hear a little bit here is, and I don't know what your opinion on it is, is that Australian startups, technology businesses, whatever it might be, they generally exit early. They do a PE sale or a get out very early and cash in on what they've produced. Whereas I've heard from lots of people in the industry that in the US, it's not as exit-minded for startups. It's let's grow something big and ride it for as long as we can and continue that passion as to why we started to begin with. Have you yeah. found that? Have you seen that in your journey in Australia and the US? I wonder if it's because there's sort of a differential at a point in time in which you would launch a startup. Like here, it's either very young or you've kind of already achieved a bunch of professional goals. In either way, you've kind of got less to lose. So maybe people are taking those bigger gambles here, but treating them as big gambles. Whereas in Australia, perhaps people are starting them in order to make some money, which is fine, obviously, but that's maybe why you, you get the smaller exits. I find here people, if you're in the startup game, you're probably a risk taker. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You've achieved so much at such a young age, and I'm sure you'll continue to inspire young entrepreneurs, both in the US and in Australia. And I just wanted to thank you for your time. It's been amazing chatting with you. No, I really appreciate it. It's really nice of you. Thank you. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.